So I want to give a quick introduction to what we're starting today. Uh, we're starting a new series on the book of Ruth. Now, uh, you know, uh, hopefully you know, if you don't know, you haven't been paying attention, that uh, Josh Burnson has been going to seminary for the last year. He uh, started... Um, the school he's going to, Sangre de Cristo uh, Seminary in the Colorado Mountains, uh, because it's in the Colorado Mountains, meets uh, spring through fall, and then they just all leave the mountain before they get snowbound. And so he goes up uh, he'll, uh, last May, came home in December, and he'll be heading back up, Lord willing, uh, in about two months, two and a half months or so. And so he's home for five months, gone for seven for school. And uh, one of his assignments is that he has to teach uh, an eight-week class at least uh, for the for a local church. And uh, the assignment that he was given was the book of Jonah. I said, uh, Brian is finishing up the book of Jonah. That might be a little bit redundant or repetitive. And so he went to his uh, professor and said, is there an alternate assignment? And his professor said, the book of Ruth, which is... Just a fantastic book. So it's going to be really fun. So uh, this is for our edification, but it's also for Josh's training as he goes through seminary and uh, explores what God's call in his life when he's done might be. Um, that could be a lot of things. It might be to pastoral ministry. It might be to come back here and just serve uh, our church or another local church in Gig Harbor uh, through through teaching and encouraging and, and being more equipped to do that. Uh, so, so I'm going to hand it over to Josh and uh, for the next eight weeks or so. Uh, we're going to get to go through the book of Ruth. So thanks, Josh. Wow, there's a lot of people way back there. I'd like to thank the session and Brett and um, you all for allowing me to do this. It's, it is a a uh, a daunting task for somebody who hasn't done this a lot, and um, it, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to learn, and hopefully we can learn together as we go through Ruth. It is a pretty fantastic book so far, and I've only really just really started digging into it um, in the last couple weeks after doing a translation of it, um, so it should be fun. Um, so first of all, uh, let's start with a word of prayer as we um, go into this study. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good, and you give us your word, which is full of many different things that show us the different aspects of your great work of redemption that you've wrought in Christ. And we thank you for calling us to yourself, even as we are fallen, sinful humans who rebel against you at every turn. We we know that you call us and you draw us to yourself and that you provide for us a redemption in Christ that pays the price for all of our rebellion. And we thank you for that and pray that you would draw our eyes to him as we study this book. Grant wisdom to me and, and um, may I learn from this and may we all together learn from this as you teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to begin with an illustration, but it's... It pales in comparison to what we actually see here. Um, today I'm going to start just using the first six verses of chapter 1 in Ruth um, to kind of set up the, really, the con- it's kind of a contrast in a way that we're going to look at. Um, and then as we get into Ruth, uh, so we're going to start kind of in a kind of a hopeless state, and then we're going to 
things are going to pick up and start to feel a lot better, I think, by the end of the book. But um, but imagine, uh, I don't know if you've personally ever done this, but surely we've at least heard of children threatening to do this, where uh, they dislike something that their parents have told them to do and maybe uh, have been grounded for something that they've done, and um, they decide to pack up their backpack or or a, a grocery sack or something with some supplies, which usually is quite inadequate, and leave the home for a trip. And normally this doesn't last long once they once they run out of food, a candy bar or whatever, or once it turns, uh, well, maybe even in a couple hours, they get tired of the cold and and not having a place to sit, and they come back home to their to their parents. <clears throat> um, and and I'd like to use that illustration to kind of point out what what um, what's gonna what I what I think is gonna be going on here. And we'll we'll talk about this where um, where we see um, some of the discipline of the Lord here in Ruth, as we see a famine come upon the land. Um, but first, just a kind of a general, um, quick overview of Ruth. Just very quick. The events of Ruth take place during the time of the judges. And the author doesn't tell us, and neither, and, and so, and I don't think it's that important to actually pinpoint when it took place, but it's likely that it took place after the, um, conquest of the Moabites, where, uh, Ehud, um, killed Eglon, the king of the Moabites, and they had peace for 80 years, and then eventually we see the Midianites suppressing Israel, and then Gideon comes. So it's probably in between the Moabite, the conquest of the Moabites, and then um, the Midian, uh, the uh, conquest of the Midianites by Gideon. So somewhere in there, but um, but the important part that we see is that it takes place during the time of the judges, um, and we'll get into that. That time was about a 200 period of time, a year period of time before we get to the time of the kings. And um, the author of the book is uncertain. Some traditions say Samuel, but there's no clear author mentioned. Um, it, we see from certain features in the book that there seems to be a, a kind of a polemic for the legitimacy of the line of David as king, possibly. Um, we end the book with David as the ultimate offspring of, of, of this 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 uh, account that that um, we start the book with no king in the time of the judges we end the book with David um, so it's possible that the book was written in part to defend David's legitimacy to the throne as a person with Moabite blood in in his line Ruth um, uh, it, it's interesting Ruth in the Jewish writings was read during the time of Pentecost so the time of the harvest and first fruits. And it is just thinking about it, it might it's just neat to think about Peter as he preaches in Acts two, defending the the uh, kingship of Christ as the ultimate seed of David. Um, he he may have been preaching that very close in proximity to the time when this when this book was read, Ruth. Um, and and so this book is just uh, beautifully written, and I and I hope to be able to point out some of the features later in the studies, but. A beautifully written story of of loss and um, love and emptiness and then fullness and despair and hope. Um, and so the book, as we go through it, I'll I'm, I'll probably break it into six parts, but it may get into seven or eight parts. And um, I have eight lessons, so 
if I break it into eight parts, that's all we'll do. If I break it into six or seven, I might do more of an overview type of look at at what's in the book um, and how it connects to redemptive history and and stuff. So uh, the the six parts are kind of this. Um, in chapter one, verses one to five, you have this family moving from Bethlehem to Moab. And chapter one, six through twenty-two, they return, or at least some return, back home to Bethlehem. In chapter two, the whole chapter, we see uh, a gleaning in Boaz's field. We we meet Boaz, <clears throat> and in chapter three, we kind of have that marriage proposal where Ruth, um, in a way, proposes that Boaz marry her. And and then uh, following that, in chapter four, the first part of that chapter, the first twelve verses. Um, we have that account of the redemption at the gate with Boaz and the Redeemer, the, the next of kin. And, uh, and then the last part of the book, verses 13 to 22 of chapter 4, is the son is born. A son is born. And, and, and in, that, in that, we also have kind of a, an epilogue there with the genealogy that, that, that could be broken into a separate section. But for now, let's just go with those six, and we'll see what happens. So as we get into the reading of this section, we'll go through verse 6 in chapter 1. And I'd like you to think about just this one simple thing. Um, when I say the year was 1776, uh, for most of us, that brings up kind of an idea of what was going on at the time, which was, well, the Declaration of Independence, but America was um, in a in war at war with, with England, so... Um, uh, it's, it's a marker. And as, and as Ruth opens, so we'll go to verse 1 here, uh, we see the author using a kind of a time marker to tell us what was going on. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, <clears throat> and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord, Yahweh, had visited his people and given them food. So as we go through this lesson, I, I um, like you just to keep in mind maybe this idea that we, as God's people, can cling to God's promises and should cling to God's promises because he keeps them all in Christ. So just a little idea to keep in mind as we go through this. So first of all, I'd like to ask a question of you all, and no pressure on answering, but um, just a survey. How many of you are, are pretty familiar with the book of Ruth? pretty good, easy, short book to read, I'd say. So that's good to know. Um, 
I'm going to be doing this study and asking some questions as we go through, and I, I do welcome your questions, and, 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 um, and we can discuss things. Um, what I'm going to do is go through, and I hope to end, maybe today I won't quite as early, but I hope to leave five to ten minutes just for general questions. And this will be both, maybe I know the answer, maybe I don't. I'm doing my own study and learning as I go, but it at least will give me some questions that I, c I can even take it back and look at it and bring an answer back next week, or, or maybe I'll just use it for my own um, school project even. Um, so it would be helpful in that regard to me as well as maybe to you. I hope to you. <laughs> um, so as we see this uh, story, Elimelech, <clears throat> he takes his family and he takes them from Bethlehem in Israel to Moab, uh, which Moab uh, isn't the best place in the world for an Israelite to go, given the story, uh, the the history of Moab, and we'll get there. But there are generally, uh, I think, two views that I came across on this. And one is that Elimelech did the right thing by taking his family, or an honorable thing by taking his family out of a famine and finding food for them. And then the other view, of, of course, would be diametrically opposed to that and saying Limelech was acting in uh, rebellion, really, against God's, at least, um, yeah, against God's fatherly discipline or the chastisement of God. So I'd like to ask, um, wh what does it look like here? Does anybody have any opinions on that? Uh, as far as just on the bare face of it, has anybody looked at that before? Is it? Presidents, yep, and um, yep, and we'll. I think I, I'll see if I get to talking about those. I think I will, but yeah. Anyone else? Well, they we were called out. We have people separate. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah, and it was. He did die. Yeah. But. Yeah, and and it was it was something that I um, that was kind of one of the things I struggled with in looking at this is what is this, and and um, part of the reason I'm only going through verse six, and in fact, really I'm going through verse five, and I put verse six in there so that we don't uh, get too depressed with the with the story, but uh, it's because there is a lot there that I think was helpful for me, and I, I'm just going to go through what I found, and I hope it's helpful for you, um, you all, and and um, I think it sets up the story 
even in in a greater way um, as we just understand what the author of Ruth is, is saying here. So the question that I would ask, and in, in one of the questions I would ask is, why was there famine in the land? Why was there famine in the land of Israel? So this was after the Israelites took took over the land of Canaan, drove out most of the inhabitants of Canaan, and were established. What's that? Breaking of God's covenant. What? Uh, so explain, if you would. So let's look into that uh, a bit here. So um, Deuteronomy, well, I think you can go to Leviticus too, uh, but we'll go to Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30 and look at the blessings and cursings and then uh, the uh, provision for restoration even. So, um, but, uh, you know, keep a finger in, maybe if you've already turned there, keep a finger there. But first I'd just like to look at uh, Eden, Genesis 3. And we'll read 16, um, 16 to 19 first, uh, but the, um, we're going we're gonna to read Genesis 3.15 too. And, and I think that's a, the idea of that promised seed is going to be, that's going to be very important as we go through Ruth. So Adam and Eve are set in this land. They're given uh, a charge to populate this land, to subdue it, and to take care of it, to tend it. And they sin, of course. They rebel against God's command to not eat of the tree, and they eat. And so uh, this curse was placed upon them. Uh, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, I skipped over verse or 15 to highlight the impossible dis- despair, dis- dis- the despair that this should have elicited. I, what hope is there here? Um, there's pain in childbearing, which should have been a joy. There's, uh, instead of being satisfied with food and given food in abundance, you have to work hard until you finally go into the very ground where the food comes from. Um, and you, they were put out of the garden, as we see later in verse uh, 23, driven out of the land. That's very, very, very depressing. But they were not operating here. He didn't give them the curse before. He gave them a promise. And so if we read verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there is this promise of a future 
deliverer. It's kind of the seed of the of the promise here that we see repeated throughout Scripture and culminating in the work of Christ and the person of Christ, of course. But if you look at the, the curses there and then go to Deuteronomy 28, um, we'll look at the curses there. And, and I'm focusing especially on the idea of, of having children, of offspring, and, um, and food, and then to some degree, um, blessed life. So Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 6, we have the blessings for obedience listed. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you, if you obey the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And if we go over to see the curses in verse 15 starting, and of course I've skipped a lot, but but if you will obey, not obey, sorry, the voice of the, the Lord your God, so, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Curse, 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 curse. But then I'd like to go to Deuteronomy 30, verses 1. We're going to stop at... um, Eight, I believe. Let's see here. Six, verses one through six. Sorry. Not used to these things. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I commanded you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you might live. And so we see that God not only provides blessing for obedience and promises cursings for disobedience, he also promises that he will restore them in their repentance and in their faith. Um, so now we see kind of in a way, the, 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 what the famine might have come upon them for, their disobedience. Um, now, Elimelech did not stay in this famine and endure through it. What, what was, what, so what does God use to bring people to repentance in Scripture? Mm-hmm. Judgment, curses, discipline. 
Um, is there a famous passage, maybe in Hebrews, that we could look at, kind of to think about this? Um, Hebrews twelve, three through eleven. Got a cheater here. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one who he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. And for what, and for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Et cetera. So we see the father disciplines his sons in love for their good. And I would propose that this is what was happening here, that God sent this famine upon Israel for their discipline, for their struggle against sin, that they might repent of their sin and, and come back to him. And, and we see Elimelech did not stay and endure this chastisement. And his name, uh, his name means God is king or my God is king. It's, it's kind of ironic that the man, well, first of all, it's in the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. But this man whose name is my God is king or God is king takes it upon himself to rule and forsook God as king by leaving the fatherly discipline of the Lord. I would submit that to you to think about as as we see them moving to Moab. And as we see them moving to Moab, we see them rejecting God in um, their worship. So I'd like to look at where Moab came from. So what was so special about Moab in terms of worshiping God? Does anyone know this? They're special. I think. Let's look at Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 to 5. And and it's not a good special. So verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And, and you may remember this story, because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. And then verse 6, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Now, if you keep on reading, you see Edom and Egypt, there's an allowance for them to, uh, their children in the third generation to come into the assembly of the Lord. Moab was very special in that they were excluded forever from coming into the assembly of the Lord. And we see throughout Israel's history, Moab is a stumbling block for Israel over and over again. Um, in Judges 10.6, uh, we see them serving Moab's gods already, uh, almost almost immediately after they were brought into the land in, in, uh, under Joshua. Um, in 1 Kings 11, Solomon 
Solomon becomes ensnared by his Moabite wives as he builds high places to their false god, Chemosh, or Chemosh. And yet, Elimelech left the blessed land of promise where God chastised his beloved children to bring them back to himself in order to temporarily fill his belly, which seems to be a familiar theme in Scripture. So think about what was in the land of Israel and what was in the land of Moab. Moab is a land that is cursed forever. No Israelites to seek its peace or prosperity forever. Israel is a land that is blessed with God's presence, dwelling in the tabernacle among his people. With God's worship, God provided a way to worship him through blood, through the sacrificial system, through the priesthood. And Elimelech is leaving for the land of Moab, which to me indicates that he's abandoning God, God's worship. So this first point that I'm making is that I would propose that this family was forsaking God by going to Moab and forsaking God's um, discipline and in forsaking God's worship. And I would also say that in this forsaking of God, they were also forsaking his promises. The Israelites had a promise. They had the line of the promised seed. Uh, Abraham was their father and Jacob and Isaac. And as they, as they kept their genealogies and looked forward to this seed, we see the joy of the son being born to to these people. And you can reflect on like Hannah and her desperate desperation for a son or uh, Rachel or uh, uh, Rebecca in a way and, and Sarah and their barrenness and God's provision of, of a son and, and how Israel looked forward to this seed. They were looking forward to this, this serpent crushing seed. And Elimelech takes his family to a land where participation in this promise wouldn't happen. They were serving their immediate needs first and not thinking about God's ultimate promises. They were, they were, they were, um, the, those things that are glorious and good and eternal, they were forsaking for the sake of temporary and material comforts. So, uh, Deuteronomy 8 talks about this, and, and this is the passage where it talks about, um, uh, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So let's turn there real quick. And I'd like to n- note, like you to note, the hungering that God talks about as he sends his people manna. Let's see here. So just starting in verse 3, and, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So he used hunger to teach them to rely upon God's word and his promises. And, and Elimelech is ignoring this. He's... He's not relying upon God's word 
and God's promises. He's relying upon himself. Does that does that make sense? Are you tracking with me there? Okay. Any questions so far? Yeah, and so, you know, some of the stuff, that's, thank you, that's a very helpful question. So really the question is, why was it so bad for Elimelech? It it seems like it was good for him as a man providing for his family to take them out of this land of famine and to look for food, whether it's Moab or Egypt or whatever. um, That does seem like a good thing. And we do. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. It is a tough one. And in, and in thinking it through, some of the stuff I, I considered were just thinking logically, just logically wouldn't it, if that was the right thing to do, shouldn't all the males in Bethlehem have gone from Bethlehem, which ironically, which you would know, means house of bread or house of food. It's, it was literal, quite literally the breadbasket of Israel. It was um, very fertile area. So taking his family from there and going to seek food somewhere else, if that was what every Israelite did, would that have been the right thing for the heads of the families to be doing? He does bless in that. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's that that is that's great. Thank you. Um, this this so the next point that I'm going to hit on the first point was that. They forsook their God. The second was they forsook their people. And, and, and in thinking about this, so in Deuteronomy, for example, God does promise a uh, restoration. It, he's, he speaks to Israel throughout um, their, the, the Old Testament in telling them to come back to me, come back to under my protection, come back under my provision, and I will provide for you. And so there's a promise of restoration. And, and I would propose the second point that, 
In doing this, Elimelech and his family were abandoning the people, their brothers in Israel. And, and so, so the question is, how were Israelites to behave toward one another in times of need? It's similar to how we're supposed to behave toward one another uh, in times of need. Take everything away for ourselves and look after our own comforts is not the way to do it. Yeah, they're one another's burdens. And and uh, God had set up this system of looking after the poor and the fatherless and the widows in Israel that was really a glorious system of of leaving stuff at the edges of the fields for them to come back and glean, and really a system designed to protect the honor of the Lord's name, who he said, this is my people, and the nations around them, they they knew that this was the Lord's people, and the Lord's reputation was on the line, and, and this was a beautiful system that he had set up. And Elimelech and his family, instead of participating in this, they left. And... and, and uh, um, and remember in Hebrews, it, it comes from Proverbs 3, actually, uh, the dis, uh, in regards to the discipline of the Lord. And, and they should have participated both in, in as a family that was likely well off, uh, they were Ephrathites, which some commentators mentioned that that could be, be referring to them as kind of a local aristocracy. They were at least well known in Israel, in Bethlehem. And, and, Naomi references later in, in uh, what, what verse is that, 21, that they came in full, indicating that they were not in desperate straits as much maybe as the rest of the people. Elimelech owned land in Israel. Um, Naomi was a well-known person, apparently, after returning after over 10 years and the people greeting her and wondering, is this Naomi? And, and so we see that it does not look like this family was any worse off than most of the families in Israel, and in fact may have been more well-off than some of the families in Israel. And yet they did, not, they did not stay and participate both in helping the poor and the needy and the fatherless and the widow, but they also did not stay and call their brothers to repent and also themselves repent of their sin and seek the Lord's help with them. So, in other words, they did not love their neighbor as themselves, which it seems like something common to humanity. Now, I won't ask if you ever have done that, but I have loved myself. I've loved myself more than my neighbor almost constantly. So, I think what what we see in Elimelech here is not unique to Elimelech, is it? Yep, and so and so that leads to my third point. Thank you. Um, so I'm getting close to ending here, and I'm not quite through. But but the third point is that Yahweh empties Moab for Naomi, and part of that emptying has to do with the striking down of her husband and the striking down of her two sons, and leaving her a destitute widow, scratching out her sustenance in a foreign land with no family that normally would be around to support her, to support her, 
with no prospect of offspring to come, um, in that she was probably beyond childbearing age. She seems to be saying that she's too old to have a husband and and have offspring anymore. And so the Lord empties Moab of the prospect of offspring, of the prospect of food. They would be getting by just by the skin of their teeth. And and um, let's read that there. So starting in verse 3, Elimelech. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So that's a tragic event. And this whole section, the first part here, is is tragic. It's Ruth is really a well-crafted story, and and part of that is the tragedy and the what's going to happen, and, and then how does Yahweh work to eventually produce this this offspring from a from a Naomi who's the the offspring is called her son who is barren in in all in all for all rights and purposes she has no real prospects of even her daughters-in-law marrying one of her sons anymore they're gone um, so Elimelech died and she was left with her two sons which may have been more comforting having two sons but these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. Then they lived there about ten years. And then both Malon and Kilion died. Both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She was left destitute, with no offspring, and and in a pretty desperate situation. And then we have verse. Six, which I decided to end with, even though the section isn't normally broken up that way. Because then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given him given them food. Now, I would propose to you here that Yahweh is emptying Moab in order to fill Naomi. And... I think this emptiness and fullness, it is something Naomi mentions in the book of Ruth. It's definitely a, a theme in scripture too, how God empties to fill. And that's going to be something we'll pick up on as we go through. But I wanted to leave you with this hope. God uses this this mention of bread in the land to call Naomi out of this cursed land of darkness with no hope back to himself and it's a glimmer of what we're going to see. It's going to be a, a good thing that she returns, regardless of Naomi's motives. I mean, as far as we know, she just went there because she wanted to eat. So, um, But Yahweh, God, the Lord God, Yahweh is the covenant name of the Lord. And when you see the capital L-O-R-D, as I know Pastor Betts said before, it it's Yahweh is the name of the Lord that that's translating. So... Not only will she be provided for here in the land, she'll be given food for her belly, but in this, God will actually provide for all people. And that through her line, the line of Elimelech and Boaz, we see the Christ, Jesus, coming into the world. And not only does Naomi get food, and then her faith is strengthened, but then God uses this to bring Christ into the world. So I would propose that's... It's very good news that comes out of this tragedy, and I'm sorry that I don't have time to 
complete my lesson, but that's what I get for being new at it. Um, so really quickly, is there one question or that anyone would like to ask? Charlie. Hmm. And the Septuagint. Hmm. Do you, does anyone know that? Who knows this? So that no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, which forever. Yet, yeah. As we read Ruth, she's a Moabite woman. Yeah. So what came to mind was I wonder if you'll get to this or not. I don't want to steer your lesson, but whether this is like a distinction. In order. the Septuagint question, and, and we will get into uh, the, the idea of a Moabite being brought into the line of Jesus, the ultimate king of, of Israel, but, and of us. Yep, 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 yeah. Thank you. That'll, that's a great question. And thank you all for your questions and comments. It's been helpful. Let's end with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you bring us the bread of life, that you have given us your comfort, that you have filled us in every way that we could possibly need. And we pray that you would grant us the eyes of faith and the trust to know that even though we go through hard times and we do not see your hand of providence ending well for us, we can know that you say it will and we know that your glory is at stake and we know that you will succeed in Christ no matter what. And we pray that you would use this book as we study it to edify us all and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.